Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem and how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I'm guessing I have your attention after that last verse was read. Um, Psalm 137 is a psalm of anguish. It's anguish mixed with rage. There's anguish over what's happened to Israel, rage over what has happened. And inside of Psalm 137 is a deep desire for the enemies of the Lord to be repaid for what they have done to God's people. Now, even if this language in Psalm 137, especially verse 9, even if it's shocking to us, that's okay. Um, Psalm 137 still has much to teach us about how we should handle our own anguish, our own rage, our own soul in these in troubling times and moments. Now, for whatever reason, and I don't know why, our culture just doesn't know how to handle negative emotions. We're not sure if we're supposed to vent our, our grief online, go see a therapist, if we're supposed to pick up journaling, Maybe some of us feel like the best thing to do in life is just to pretend to be like we're okay. Uh, but this psalm suggests, I mean, it's not that it's against any of those things, but maybe the last one, but it does suggest something to us. It suggests four things, that in these times of anguish, in these times of rage, we should weep, we should remember, we should ask, and we should listen. Weep, remember, ask, and listen. So let's start with weep. That is, this psalm tells us that it's okay to just cry your eyes out. You don't have to fake happy. You can simply weep. It's okay to weep. What we see in this text is that the Israelites are weeping because they just got exiled from Jerusalem, their homeland. So in the year 597 B.C., uh, there was a big siege, a big battle against Jerusalem between the Babylonians and the Israelites. And the Babylonians, they, they came around the city, they breached the walls of Jerusalem, they came in, they poured in through the hull, and they killed people. They picked up little ones by, by the feet, and they held them up in the air, and they, they broke them to pieces. They set fire to the city, buildings, homes, burned to ash. Then they took a large number of them and they put them in chains and they sent them on a march across the sands all the way to Babylonia. This was not a one-time event. After 597, it happened again two more times. 
until the point when Jerusalem was a complete wreck. This psalm recounts the immediate aftermath of uh, probably the first or second one of those exiles. Look at verse 1, please. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. They lost their home, they lost Zion, and so they wept. It's that simple. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. And this was a time to weep. To do anything else in such a position would have been wrong. To sing joyous songs would have been wrong. Their captors taunted them, saying, look at verse 3. Their captor said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now, that wasn't like just asking somebody to, to sing a song. In this situation, it was more like asking a prisoner of war to sing their national anthem in the midst of like while you're torturing them or something. It was cruel. So in that setting, the Israelites refused. Look at verse 4. They say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How could they put on a fake smile and sing of their city behind them that had gone up in smoke? They couldn't. It wasn't the time. The book of Leviticus tells of a a similar sort of emotional story. Uh, There's Aaron, and he's the high priest, and he has four sons. Two of them, Nadab and Abihu, they, they offer this strange sacrifice to the Lord, something he didn't ask, something he didn't want. It was perverse, and the Lord killed them in that moment. Uh, but then the, the priests were still supposed to go about the normal sacrifices. And so then they're supposed to do the sin sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins of the people. And part of that sacrifice is they were supposed to sit around the table and eat the sacrifice after they'd cooked the animal. It's supposed to be a celebration, a time when they're rejoicing because, oh, the Lord has forgiven us. But the sons, two of them, had just died. So they couldn't. Now Moses hears this and he's getting all upset because he's like, you're breaking the rules. We don't want to go against what God has commanded. We're supposed to, to rejoice as he has told us to rejoice in this moment. And Aaron looks at Moses and says, we, we can't. Uh, if I had eaten the sacrifice today, he says, would the Lord have approved? See, sometimes in the midst of extreme pain, bad things, uh, you, you can't do the joyous thing. You can't be happy in those moments. It would be wrong to be happy in those moments. And in, in the case of Aaron, it would have made a mockery of the sacrifice for him to sit down with his family members and enjoy this feast with two of his sons dead. Likewise, Israel could not sing the songs of Zion in such a setting. It would have made a mockery of the Psalms. This was a time to weep. So even if you haven't ever been to a counselor, you have probably heard that one of the worst things you can do with your past trauma is to to keep it inside, pretend like it doesn't happen, and to not talk about it and move on. That's like one of the worst things you can do because you carry that stuff around inside you like, like shrapnel. It's there. You can't simply move on. But for some reason, the church has become this place where we feel like we're supposed to. We're supposed to hide what's bothering us. 
we're not supposed to let other people know about our pain unless they're like really close. And, and then only like if we've known them a long time. It seems like our number one goal whenever we, we gather together is to just not make people feel awkward. So we put on fake smiles. We pretend we're okay. Somebody asks, how are you? We say, oh, fine. And we move on. But sometimes, maybe quite often, deep down, uh, we, we wish we could just say, I'm doing terrible. My family is falling apart. My health is bad. My loved one's health is bad. I'm drowning in sin and I can't seem to get out. Or, or it feels like God has abandoned me. I don't feel his presence. I mean, if, if this is you, uh, which I assume it is, at least on some days, if this is you, then Psalm 137 is giving you permission to sit down and weep. Weep. And look, if you're not the crying type, it is giving you permission to frown. It's giving you permission just to even just tell somebody that you're having a bad day. Psalm 137 says, honest answers only. It says, stop putting a silver line on everything. Sometimes, weep. It is not a sin to be sad. It's not a sin to be sad. I've been in ministry long enough to know that everybody in this room has something, at least one thing in their life that is really painful right now. It's okay to weep. Weep. Now part two, remember. Remember what has been lost. We'll be looking at verses five and six for this one. So the person who wrote this psalm Uh, They are calling down in these verses what is called a a self-maledictory oath. That's a fancy theological term for they're calling down a curse upon themselves if they fail to do something. Look at verse 5. He says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Verse 6. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. Essentially, they're saying that if they forget Jerusalem then may all their skills in music and singing, may it all just be brought to nothing. May it be useless if they're going to make a mockery of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What's the deal with Jerusalem? This language about remembering Jerusalem, not forgetting Jerusalem, it's not like uh, remember the Alamo or something. It's not like they're, they're trying to drum up some, some motto to rally behind so that they can, they can carry out vengeance. This language of remember Jerusalem, it makes a little bit more sense when we we look at the end of verse 6. Look with me. They say that Jerusalem should be set as what? As their highest joy. So all this anguish, all this rage, it exists because they have lost their highest joy. So they weep. Jerusalem is their highest joy. Now, let's pause for a second on this, because if somebody told me that a city was their highest joy, like if one of you said, Canada is my highest joy, or, or Hull is my highest joy, I, we, we would talk about that. There's some concerns there. So what's the deal with Jerusalem? Jerusalem was special because that's where God chose to dwell, to have his special presence with his people. It's where his temple was. Where his temple is, is where uh, forgiveness is symbolized. Love, 
rule, like his rule in, in, his lives, er, in the people's lives. That's where it's all supposed to take place. It's the hub, the special place of God's presence. But at some point in Israel's history, they didn't remember God's presence even more, even though they were in Jerusalem. They forgot. They forgot God. And in this moment, they were seduced by idols, the idols of their neighbors. They no longer set Jerusalem and Jerusalem's God, Yahweh, as their highest joy. So God leaves. And that's the great tragedy that we find in the Old Testament narrative, is that God's presence leaves Jerusalem. We see this in the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet during the exile, and probably a few years before the events of this psalm took place, Ezekiel was standing by the rivers of Babylon. He was along one of the canals, and he receives this vision from the Lord. And in this vision, he's brought to this place where he can see, spiritually see, the downfall of Jerusalem. And how the downfall of Jerusalem is depicted is very interesting. If you've read Ezekiel, you remember this this strange throne machine thing. It's all otherworldly, and it symbolizes God's glorious presence. And this thing leaves Jerusalem... It goes across the, the, and, and up the Mount of Olives, and then it like ascends into the sky. Kind of parallels Jesus' departure um, after he uh, leaves in the book of Acts. Anyway, uh, God's presence was shown to have left Jerusalem because of their idolatry. So now, in verses 5 and 6, for this psalmist to bring down this self-maledictory oath, uh, if they forget Jerusalem, it's clear what they're getting at. We don't need to forget God anymore. If I forget God anymore, it's not like, you know, oh, what's the point of living? It's like, what's the point of living? I've lost everything. I've lost the very presence of God. I can't fall into idolatry again. I can't be assimilated into Babylon. I can't worship their gods, Marduk and the gang. Uh, I have to remember what has been lost. I have to remember the presence of God. I have to remember the best place on earth. Next to him. Somebody here in this church, I won't tell you who, uh, recently mentioned that preachers talk about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien way too much, and I think that's a fair criticism. Well, one time, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were taking a walk together, and uh, this was before C.S. Lewis was a Christian. And on this walk, they talked about fairy tales and myths, the great stories that all cultures seem to have. And there's so many parallels in in humanity's stories that we've told, like across everywhere. And C.S. Lewis was was kind of questioning this and thinking about it with his Christian friend. And all these stories, they're fantastic with these heroes and victories. And something that a lot of them tend to have is happy endings, fairy tales should have happy endings. And it's like all cultures across the world, uh, we have this vague memory of this good thing, this good otherworldly thing that's so different from our present experience. Because, look, in life right now, happy endings are rare to non-existence. They're non-existent. We, we, we get good moments in life, but if, if you think about it, even, even some of our best times, it, it's not really that fulfilling. But it seems like what we all want and what we were all made for. And so dwelling on this, C.S. Lewis came to realize that Jesus was that true story, that true old myth that we had forgotten, and he became real. 
It was a story wrapped in flesh. The Word became flesh. And it was part of this conversation with Tolkien that, that led him to become a Christian. If you're exploring Christianity this morning, it's time for you to remember. Now, you have experienced anguish in your life. You've experienced rage. You keep getting your hopes up, though. Uh, life is pain. Why do you get your hopes up? You know you should, you should think differently on this. Why do you daydream about the future if uh, experience has taught you that the future is going to let you down? Even your, your happiest moments, your best vacations, they haven't been satisfactory. The answer is, you were made for something more. You were made for God's presence. You are made in the image of God to dwell with God. You don't need to remember Jerusalem, though. Jerusalem in the text, we see it was just a symbol. You need to remember something much older. The Bible tells us about a garden, the Garden of Pleasure, the Garden of Eden found in Genesis. And in this garden, God dwelt with mankind, his image. And in this place, uh, man's work was the most fulfilling work you could imagine. Man's pleasure, or, and woman's pleasure, was the most best thing ever. It was fulfilling. It was right. But then mankind was deceived, and we fell into rebellion. And part of this rebellion is what? We were exiled from the presence of God. And since that day, all of us have been trying to get back in. We've all been searching for a way home, and we've all been looking for it in the wrong places. So if you're exploring Christianity this morning, it's time to really remember what has been lost. Now, some of us who have been Christians uh, for, for a manner of uh, years, uh, we grow forgetful as well. So in our own grief, uh, in, in our own anger, we will look to other things to soothe us. We will take the wrong road home, so to speak. Uh, we forget that Jesus Christ has given himself so that we can be brought into God's presence. And so we search for that presence elsewhere. Um, and whenever we're searching for his presence elsewhere, we find ourselves trying to distract ourselves in our lives. Uh, we are trying to... to um, to look for him in all sorts of places. This, this week, I, I encourage some of you, maybe you should just turn off your phone for just 10 minutes and just go sit silently and try to find his presence again. Just, just think about him. Spend, spend 10 minutes just, just thinking about him and remembering what has been lost, what it would really be like to be in his presence fully again. Turn off your Xbox for just 10 minutes. Just take some time. Dwell on what it's going to be like to be with him. And whenever you do this, you're going to see a big disconnect between what that's like and what life is like now. And to, to, to reach that point, you're going to realize that all these things we strive for in life, that they can't bring us there. We have to have Jesus. And Jesus is eager to spend time with you. Remember that. There might have been a time in your life whenever you were eager to pray. He's eager to listen. So we should weep. We should remember, third, we should ask. We should ask God to repay evil as he said he would. Now, now this is the section that might have some stuff that makes you feel a little uncomfortable, and that's fine. Uh, for this, we're going to be looking at the rest of the psalm. That's 7 to 9, verses 7 to 9. So, the Israelites, they now ask God to repay Edom and repay Babylon for all that they've done. Now, who are the Edomites? Uh, the Edomites were actually Israel's closest relatives. 
So if, if you're familiar with the Genesis story, there's a guy named Jacob. And Jacob gets renamed Israel. Jacob had a brother named Esau. Uh, and, and they fought that they were not close uh, brother and brother. Uh, and, and Esau was the father of the Edomites. So even from the earliest stage, Israel's closest relative, there was always friction. And the relationship just continued to get worse and worse. And when Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem, this was just like the, the final straw. Edom stood back and cheered the Babylonians on. Look at verse 7. They said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Rip the city apart. This was like Fredo, not Frodo, uh, Fredo uh, betraying his brother Michael Corleone. This was the dwarves shooting the horses in the last battle. See, these, uh, these Edomites, they should have been rallying alongside Israel. They should have been helping to defend their brother, but they, 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 they spoiled it. These old tensions, these old feuds, they ruined it. So now, 700 miles across the sands, Israel is sitting down along, along the riverside, and they're calling for God to help and to bring judgment upon the Edomites, to punish them. So that's the Edomites. What about the Babylonians? Look at verse 8. It says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you. Notice that word, repays you, with what you have done to us. So what had been done to Israel? We've already talked about it a little bit. The Babylonians had destroyed the Israelites in every conceivable realm of life, all the way down to their babies. So how could God repay Babylon according to what they'd done to the Israelites? Verse 9, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. In other words, blessed be the one who does exactly to Babylon as Babylon did to Israel. Now look, this is a hard passage and it's fine for Christians to have different opinions on it. But here's how I think we should look at this. Uh, first, um, I think it needs to be addressed that Jesus says to love your enemies. He says, uh, he says, love your enemies. And how did Jesus live? That's exactly how he lived. In fact, he laid down his life for his enemies, us. He laid down his life. He died for his enemies. But that's not all Jesus said. Jesus also said that he'd come back in judgment. Go read the book of Revelation and you will see a Jesus who is strong, who is coming in battle, who will have victory. So it's not that simple that like Jesus is loving in the Old Testament is, is angry or something. It's not that simple. So that was first. Second, uh, we would probably be a little bit more sympathetic to verse 9 in this cry for, for such a specific justice. We'd probably be more sympathetic if we had suffered in the same way as the Israelites. So I, I think it's a little snobby and judgmental of us for us to look down on this type of speech uh, as if uh, we would never say that. It's like, maybe if we were put in those shoes, we could sing this psalm and really mean it, even in verse 9. Third, and, and this is the most important bit, so this is what I want you to hold on to because this is a theological thing that, that can help you read Scripture. The psalmist isn't just coming up with this language about babies. 
He's not getting this language against the Edomites either from his own mind. He's getting it from what God has already promised through prophets, Isaiah in particular. So look at verse 7 again. Against the Edomites, it says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. The day of Jerusalem. Isaiah, the prophet, says a couple hundred years before, he says, For the Lord has a day of vengeance for the cause of Zion, and the streams of Edom shall be turned to pitch, and they shall burn, and Edom will be on fire forever. Um, Edom is promised repayment. And then the same thing with Babylon. Uh, Babylon, uh, in in the book of Isaiah, in in chapter 13, it says, and listen closely, Isaiah says, Babylon's infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. So Isaiah, writing a couple hundred years before the Babylonians did the baby stuff to Israel, he's already saying that God is promising to repay them. And so now uh, the psalmist is asking God to fulfill those promises. Now Isaiah has a, has a lot of prophecies and a lot of promises in that book, and, and judgment and repayment's part of it. There's also restoration is a big part of it. But right now they have to deal with their anger, and the Lord has given them this. They have said that the Lord will do justice according to what has been done against them. So the psalmist asked God to do it. Right now, somewhere around Kabul, Afghanistan, there may be a Christian mother praying the psalm. She may be crying out right now, weeping, because her husband is is gone. He's either in hiding or he's dead. She may be remembering her daughter, whom has been taken away by the Taliban for who knows what sort of purposes. And she is praying the psalm and asking the Lord to repay them for what they have done to her that they would feel the same pain that she feels. Because how could that situation be made right if they don't pay for what has been done? Well, this prayer, this psalm, is the avenue where we get to ask God to repay in such a way. In Deuteronomy, God promises that he's going to repay the nations who harm Israel. He famously says, and it gets quoted by Paul later, he says, vengeance is mine. That's what God says. He says, vengeance is mine. And recompense. So, whether it be the Taliban, whether it be Hitler, whether it be our own rulers, gangs in the city, abusive church leaders, we're going to face Babylon again and again and again. God is inviting us through these words to bring all of our requests to justice to Him, to ask Him for vengeance. And look, this is something that that, that kind of, we we feel uncomfortable with it, but he even wants our hatred. Ben preached a Psalm 139, and it says, I I hate them with perfect hatred. There are places in the Psalms where, where, where hatred is talked about, and what the Lord wants us to do is to be honest with him about even that. We don't need to be all flowery when we pray to God. We don't need to be whitewashed and and put on our suit. Um, He wants us raw. He wants the the most basic, like, unfiltered version of us. That includes hatred. So part of what we're supposed to do is ask God to to deal with that, to repay, to bring vengeance, to bring restoration. It's okay. You can ask him. So weep, remember, ask, and now our final point. Listen. Because these verses end with with a plea. 
And then there's this silence that comes after those verses. It's the time of listening, where we listen for God's answer. Look, uh, Christianity is not a self-help religion. It's not something that we do to make ourselves feel better. No, in fact, we ask God for help, and then we actually expect him to come and answer us. God eventually answers, answers the Israelites. Uh, Daniel, years after this psalm was written, not sure when exactly, um, he also, like these Israelites and like Ezekiel, he was standing alongside the waters of Babylon, and he received a vision too. And in that vision, God showed him that Babylon would be destroyed, and then the next kingdom of the Medes would be destroyed, and then the, the next kingdom of the Persians would be destroyed, and then there would be this other big, spooky, scary kingdom after that that would kind of continue and change and be spiritual. And it too, like the final wicked kingdom, rule on earth, would also be destroyed. God would do this. So we ask God to do it, and God is making promises that he will. And we see that God has been fulfilling those promises. He fulfilled it in Daniel's day, and the Israelites went home. But did they quit singing about Babylon? No. They kept singing this psalm. Long after the Babylonians were destroyed, they kept singing this psalm. This psalm is in the fifth book of the Psalter, which a lot of uh, theologians think that, that it was used after the exile, kind of like a, a calling down God's presence one again, once again to restore the kingdom. So these people are singing about Babylon, about a return from exile, and they're expecting it, even though they're back home in Jerusalem. They were still listening. And we too, like them, should still sing this and we should still listen. All of our weeping over our present woes, which I hope we all learn how to weep. All of our remembering over what has been lost, which we should spend some time this week to remember. And all of our asking God to judge evil, which we should do. All of it was pointed to and answered in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah calls Jesus a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The shortest verse in scripture, you know it. Uh, Jesus wept. He was distraught over pain and death. And whenever Jesus uh, was getting ready to go to the cross, he was sitting there crying out what Luke calls tears of blood. Our weeping is met in Jesus. And our remembering? <laughs> well, there at the bitter end, whenever Jesus was on the cross, what did he cry out? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The presence of God, which he had known every day for, since eternity, it was taken away from him in his flesh. It became just a memory. And all the rage, all the wrath, all that we ask God to bring justice for in our life, all of that rage and wrath was poured into Jesus Christ. Every one of our sins was met right then and there in him. All the sins of the Israelites, all of ours. What happened was God had given his own little one to be dashed against the rock. All to save you. All because he took pity on you. All because he loves his enemies. And if you put your faith in him, know that right now he is watching over you like a like a parent, like, a, like one of those helicopter parents. He has his eyes on you. And he's going to repay all who do you harm. 
He will restore you to where you're supposed to be at his side in his presence because he loves his children. Let's pray. Lord, you know pain. You know anguish. You know anger. And you know them better than we do. You came to experience them all to save us because you loved us. And for that we thank you and we pledge our lives to you anew. So teach us to weep as you wept. Teach us to remember God's presence as we live in exile, to set you as our highest joy. Teach us to bring our anger and hatred and desires for vengeance and lay them at your feet. You've promised to take care of evil and we ask that you would do it. We ask that you would stop the evil right now that is threatening thousands of Christians in Afghanistan. We ask that you, by your mercy, that you would rescue them and stop all who seek to harm them. Teach us to listen to you, to wait for your promises. In the name of Jesus Christ, our rescuer, we pray this. Amen.